steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, just we are here because our best efforts to make it through our week on our own have, have not worked. And so we come to this place uh, to reorient ourselves to this story that's bigger than us. Um, this story that roots us in what is true, that roots us in what is real, um, that, and that, that ultimately roots us in Christ and his love for us. So that we might be sent out back into the world, back to our homes, our families, our jobs, our, uh, the things that you have us to do. Um, and so, Lord, would you just draw near to us? Would we hear your voice this morning? We have your book open before us, and we, we need you. We so desperately need you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the past couple of months, Pastor Ben, he's been walking us through the section in Colossians just before our text today. And we've been looking at these household codes that would have been very familiar to Paul's audience, considering what it would actually look like. What would it actually look like for the family to live with one another underneath the lordship of Christ, where power is transformed? We no longer use it to assert ourselves over others, but we use it to sacrificially bless the other, which is modeled after Christ's own humble service to us. And so today's text answers, well, once we achieve that, then what? Then what? It's here in our text that Paul shifts his attention from the Christians' relationships with each other to their relationships with those outside of the community. But in order for these fledgling house churches in Colossae to have any sort of impact on their other than Christian neighbors, they have to be healthy. They have to be submitting to each other out of their love for Christ. To move on to their external witness without the internal health would be detrimental to their mission. And we know too many churches like that, right? Reaching out in the name of Jesus to change the world while they're rotting and sick on the inside. Forgetting that it's God who saves sinners, not us. And we too need the very same grace that we are preaching about. We know churches that swing to the other side of the pendulum, right? We love each other, but hey, let's not spoil this thing, okay? And we forget, um, we, we kind of shield ourselves against the discomfort, the awkwardness 
of having to change if someone walks into our doors that we're not very sure about. So which side of the pendulum do you swing towards? Which side does our church tend to swing towards? Whichever side it is, it leads us into an us versus them mindset, doesn't it? Those aren't outside of our community are either people that, that we need to save, we need to rescue, or people we're supposed to protect ourselves from. Sharing our faith with our other than Christian neighbors is something we can do for the wrong reason. It's something that we can neglect altogether. But in our text today, Paul shows us what we need to do it well. So our big question that we'll ask today is, how do we walk with those outside the community of faith? And Paul suggests three things that will help us in that. First, we need thanksgiving that keeps us awake. We need intercession that opens doors. And thirdly, we need wisdom that answers our neighbor's questions. And so let's start with this first one. So first, thanksgiving that keeps us awake. So look at verse 2 with me. Paul writes, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So here Paul exhorts the Christians in Colossae to keep praying, to devote themselves to prayer. And the rest of the verse, it kind of it gives more direction as to what kind of prayer Paul has in mind. It's prayer marked by thanksgiving. And Paul has referred to thanksgiving throughout this letter. In chapter 1, Paul starts off his letter saying, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. He thanks God for their faith, their new faith. And a few verses later, Paul says that they should give thanks for the very same thing. He writes saying that they should give thanks to the Father who's qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And there's a purpose to this devoted, uh, unrelenting practice of giving thanks. And it's there in verse 2. Paul wants them to be watchful. Some translations say, keeping alert. And this, this word, it shows up frequently in the Gospels when Jesus speaks to his disciples about the end of history. So when he returns and makes all things new, will he find followers that are still awake in a dark world where it's easy to fall asleep? Paul recognizes the vulnerable place the Colossian believers are in too. Some of these Christians, they must have been tempted to just go back to their former paganism they are a religious minority in a city that's full of people who don't understand them and false religious teachers coming in saying that they need more than just Christ. They need an experience. They need extra rules and regulations. And not only that, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul has been imprisoned for proclaiming the very same faith that they now profess. So their old life must look pretty good at times. But Paul encourages them, pray and don't stop praying. Stay awake. 
It might not feel like it at times, but there is an unfolding story, this redemptive arc to history that's authored and carried out by Christ that's older and bigger than Rome. Your view of what threatens you, it might be too big. And your view of God and what he's doing in the world, it might be too small. And so, stay awake. Pray and stay awake to what's really true. So how do we, how do, we do life with those outside the community of faith, Paul? Paul says, start. Start with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving reminds us that the God who gave us new life is the very same God who's still living and active in our world and in the lives of our neighbors. Are you awake to this reality? Uh, It just reminds me of, it's one of my favorite books um, in the Narnia Chronicles, um, The Horse and His Boy. And this book, it's interesting in particular because it happens outside of outside of Narnia, and and the main character of this book is Shasta, and Shasta doesn't, he's never heard of Aslan. He's never heard of Aslan the lion, And, and throughout his journey, though, he continues to have these interesting interactions with a lion, and at first he's not, he's not sure if this lion is a friend or an enemy, but at the end of the book, he finds out that it was Aslan, It was Aslan the lion who's been working behind the scenes, active, present, sometimes clearly, sometimes confusingly, sometimes without Shasta even knowing. Aslan has been guiding his life, saving him, protecting him. How did God do that in your life? How does he continue to do that in your life? What are the ways that he's been guiding you to himself Notice those things and give thanks and know that he's still that kind of God. And by doing so, we may start to believe that what he's done and what he's doing in our lives, he might be planning to do for our other than Christian neighbors as well. So how do we walk with those outside the community of faith? We start with thanksgiving that keeps us awake to the reality that it's God who saves, not us. And he is alive and active. And next, Paul says, we need intercession that opens doors. So look at verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, at the same time, pray also for us. So Paul moves from thanksgiving to intercession, which is prayers spoken to God on behalf of other people. And in this case, Paul's asking for prayer for him and for his team, probably Paul, Epaphras, and Timothy. And he asks that they pray that God would open to us a door. And Paul is again reminding the Colossian church that God is the main mover here. He's the one who gave them the gift of faith and who will do the same for others. God is the one bringing to bear his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And he's asking that God would open doors for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul's referring to the word that's the gospel message about Jesus, the gospel that he has opened up to the Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. This is the mystery of Christ that Paul refers to, because for ages the Jewish people alone had been the primary object of God's affection, the ethnic group that God had set apart for himself, 
so that they would declare God's glory among the nations. But after the resurrection of Jesus, a new age has come upon them. The plan that God had written from the beginning was starting to unfurl. You no longer had to be or become a Jew to be a part of the family of God. God swung the doors wide in Jesus and invited everybody in. And faith in Christ, being baptized into his death and resurrection, was what made you a part of God's people. Which means that Paul's target audience has just suddenly got a lot bigger. And Paul, you know, he had a lot of accolades, but it doesn't matter how good of a pastor or preacher you are. He knows, he knows that the powerhouse of his apostolic ministry is the prayers of God's people. So don't hear, don't read these words as Paul giving lip service to the Colossians. He knows that he needs them. So he reminds them and he reminds us of our priestly status that we've been given in Jesus. They can't intercede, they they can intercede with Christ and their prayers have power to open doors. And you know, intercession, it can be done in a separated manner, right? Even here, Paul is asking the Colossians to pray that God would open doors for the word in the lives of people who they will probably never meet. Paul's likely in Rome under house arrest, and Colossae is is more than a thousand miles away. And so we pray for similar things. You know, when we pray for the Schaefers in Japan, we're praying that God would open doors for them in the hearts of Japanese people that you and I will likely never get the privilege to meet. And that's good. We should do that. However, here in verse 3, Paul reminds us of his chains, his imprisonment. And I think by doing so, he reminds us that the Christian life requires us to follow Christ into the world where some people want nothing to do with him. It requires us to familiarize ourselves with our other-than-Christian neighbors, move into their lives, their struggles, their pains and sins. Intercession often requires a compassion that can only be earned when we actually see our neighbor. And Jesus teaches this way of intercessory prayer. You know, it made me think of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus has gone throughout all the cities and villages in Galilee, and he's proclaimed the gospel. He's healed diseases, and he's, he's gotten his hands dirty in the lives of these people. And as he's done that, he is stirred with compassion for them. And it says, Uh, There in Matthew chapter 9, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what does he do? What does he do? He asks the disciples to pray. Pray. Pray for laborers to go out into these fields that are ripe for harvest. Do you see these lost sheep? Pray for them. Do you see their pain? Familiarize yourself with them. Pray, and God may just open a door. For some of us, our prayers, you know, might feel lifeless and disconnected from a real-life person. So is there a person or a group of people that stir your heart like Jesus before the crowds? 
And what's a doable next step for you to enter into their life, into the, into the life and world of someone who doesn't know Jesus? Not out of obligation because some religious Bible talker is telling you to, but, but out of compassion because your heart is stirred for them. So how do we walk with those outside the community of faith? Paul calls us to pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Intercede that God might open doors in the hearts of our neighbors. And as you pray for them, familiarize yourself with their lives, their pains, their longings. And then, just like Matthew 9, where Jesus asks his disciples to pray for more labors. Have you ever seen, have you ever caught this? After they pray, what happens? Jesus sends them out. (laughs) And so just like that, the Colossian church is sent out in word and deed ministry. Paul turns his attention to the Colossians and their own ministry among their neighbors who don't know Jesus. So look at the beginning of verse 5. This is our third point. We need a wisdom that answers our neighbors' questions. Paul writes in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. So first off, this term that Paul uses for those outside the church, it's not like a bad word. He's not, outsiders, he's not calling the Colossians names. He doesn't see them as lesser than. Jesus even used this kind of language when he was explaining to his disciples why he spoke to them clearly, plainly, and why he spoke to those outside of their community in parables. And Paul has expressed his desire for the Colossian church to walk in wisdom before. He's been praying that they grow in wisdom, remember? In chapter 1, he writes this, And so from the day we heard of their faith, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And the word here in in verse 5, to walk, it's a Jewish way of describing a way of life. A way of life. And Paul is, you know, he's just assuming He's just assuming, as he writes to these Colossian believers, that they're, they're just rubbing shoulders with non-Christian people. That their way of life will naturally weave them in and out of the lives of their other-than-Christian neighbors. They'll be interacting with them and should do so in a way that's shaped by wisdom that's from above. There's a Jesus-shaped way that we're to interact with our neighbors and a not-Jesus-shaped way. And for Paul, knowing that the Colossians are a religious minority in a world largely hostile to them, he encourages them to live in a way that might actually earn them an audience. Pique the curiosity of their neighbors instead of putting something in the way of them and the gospel, in the way of them and Jesus. And so when you are walking on UNL's campus, outside the student union, and you see those angry men on their soapboxes, red in the face, you know, with a Bible in their hand, and they're saying things, horrible things, that Jesus would never, ever say. It's okay. It's okay to think to ourselves and to tell your other-than-Christian friend, that is not how Jesus would do it. It's just not how you would do it. 
because we never see Jesus talking to people like that who don't know him. We do see him talking like that to professional religious people who think that they know God but really don't. And so we're to walk wisely among outsiders. And part of that wisdom, remember, is recognizing we are in God's world. And the age we're in where Christ has come and will come again, there will come a time where that will end. And we don't know when that is. And so Paul exhorts the Colossian church to make the best use of the time. While we walk with wisdom towards outsiders, there's a non-anxious, non-anxious urgency to the way we grab up every moment the Lord gives us, every open door he presents to us. Look at verse 6. Paul focuses on our speech with our other-than-Christian neighbors because it's often our words that get us into trouble, right? That lead us out of wisdom and into foolishness. And so he writes, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And the word, this word gracious, it can refer to the nature of how we speak, are speaking with and about other than Christians should always be gracious, whether they're present or not. Gracious, it can also refer to the content of our speech. Our speech should be about divine grace. It should be about Christ. And we're to do it in a way that's seasoned with salt, a way that can connect with them and that's interesting to them. It's fascinating to read through the book of Acts and to see the way that Paul talks to Jewish people and to Gentile people. It's completely different. When Paul spoke of Christ to Gentiles, he made sure to do it in a way that they could understand. And so he didn't use the Torah. He didn't speak to them in Hebrew. He often actually started with their own poets, their own philosophers. He observed their life, their religion, and communicated the gospel to them in a way that they'd appreciate, in a way that they'd want to know more. And so Paul recognizes there's no one-size-fits-all way to share about Christ. The message has to be catered to the audience, their culture, their desires, their lives, and pain points, which is why he says at the end of verse 6, this is all so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, each individual person. And the wise way we walk among outsiders, it's gonna, it, it should elicit their questions. And when those questions come, you know, we grab up the opportunity and we speak about Christ in a not weird, awkward way, in a way that's wise and gracious and interesting. Um, when I was a freshman in college, I was a brand new Christian, and I loved Jesus. I was zealous about my new faith in him and about sharing it with others. And I did one of those things where I went into college and I didn't know my roommate. And that was fine until it wasn't fine. It was fine until it wasn't fine, and, and so I started to discover that my new roommate, my freshman year, he was interested in more things than besides, besides getting an education, you know? And almost every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, he would come home from 
a crazy night of partying, and, you know, he'd, he'd bring a friend. And I started to get frustrated. Even worse, I, I started to get self-righteous. And so I did what any self-righteous Christian would do in that moment. I started to share my faith. Which means that every night he'd come home and keep me from my beloved sleep, which I need. I would hop out of my bed. I would grab my giant, I mean, it was bigger than this, but my giant ESV study Bible that's like eight times the size of this Bible. I'd grab it off of my nightstand and I would go to my desk and I would slam the thing. I'm not even kidding. Like, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I would do this. I would slam it down on my desk, and I would start to read it. And just to make sure that he got the message, I would add a few, like, judgmental grunts and sighs. You know, just to make sure that he got it. I, uh, I mean, like, we're supposed to preach the gospel at all times, right? And if necessary, use words. That's a, that's a joke, but... Um, and so as you can imagine, my evangelistic efforts, it did not spark curiosity in my roommate. And, you know, there was so much passion. Like, I loved Jesus. I loved him. But so little wisdom and graciousness. And so before we're ever presented opportunities to speak about Jesus with our other-than-Christian neighbors in a way that they, they will hear us, before, before they gather up the courage to ask us their very good, thoughtful questions about Jesus, they are observing our life. They are watching the way that we parent, the way that we talk to our spouse, the way we care for creation, the way we work the way we deal with authority, the way we handle stress, the way we handle leisure and play, the way we handle politics, how much we drink on a night out, the things we throw out with the trash, trash the, the signs we put in our yard, the books we're reading, the ways we respond to criticism, the ways we respond to current events, the ways we treat the poor, the ways we use money, the ways we talk about sex, the clothes we wear. You are a city on a hill. What do your neighbors see? Whatever they see, would it make them curious about Jesus? Or would it make them feel like Jesus has nothing new to offer them? Or worse, that, that all he has to offer them is judgment and condemnation. Man, thank goodness that it isn't up to us to save the world, you know? Like, woo, 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 that's a good thing. You know, Jesus was at work in your life before you ever knew him. He was praying for you, wooing you with his grace, ordering your life so that you might find your way to him. He entered into the messiness of your world. He moved into the neighborhood at a great cost to him. His wisdom, his way of life, it became attractive to you. As, you gave, as he gave you the gift of faith, he spoke gracious words to you, words of life, words that met you where you were at. And like he did with Paul, who wrote this letter, who was Saul of Tarsus before he met Jesus, he met you on the way, right? And he took your violence and lust 
and, and foolishness onto himself, absorbed it into himself and the judge, judgment it deserved into himself on the cross. And he offered you new resurrection life in him. He gave you himself full of wisdom and mercy and grace. He gave you brothers and sisters, a new family of faith. He made you a priest with a story to tell about God's world and our place in it. And he's forgiven us the ways that we've had a small view of God and so tried to save our neighbor by ourselves. He's forgiven us the ways that we have closed ourselves off and tried to keep the gospel to ourselves from others. And so now, rooted in him, in his love, in his mercy, given grace by him, we get to turn and offer the very same thing to our neighbors that don't know him. Amen. Let me pray. Uh, what grace, what salvation that you have, have brought about in our lives, and what a task that you have set before us, Lord. And we don't have to do it alone. Uh, you are with us, and you're working in our neighbors' lives. And so I pray for the experience, um, yeah, that we would, as, as we take risks to enter into the lives of, of our neighbors, that we would see you've already been there, working, wooing them, loving them. I pray that you would open doors uh, and that you would keep us alive to the beauty of the gospel in a way that makes, it, makes us generous with it. Um, yeah, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.